Hey, and thanks for taking the time to listen with us here at Gospel Way as we seek to find rest in Christ. Please know that this is supplemental and does not replace your local church or the pastor that God has given to shepherd your soul. But it is our prayer that God will use these resources to bless you and point you to Jesus. I call your attention to, first of all, 1 Corinthians chapter number 10. We'll read two passages this morning before we get started. We'll read 1 Corinthians chapter number 10, then we'll turn over to the book of Mark chapter number 14, and we'll spend the majority of our time this morning in the book of Mark. Uh, we will again next week read both these passages together uh, because they, they intertwine, they uh, deal with the things that we're going to be looking at uh, we're going to break this message of uh, the Lord's Supper. We're going to break it into uh, two messages the Sunday and this Sunday, and then again next week. So we're going to look at First Corinthians chapter number ten. We're going to read two verses there: verse number sixteen and verse number seventeen, and then we'll turn over to the book of Mark, First Corinthians chapter 10 and verse number 16, the Bible said, The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we being many are one bread. And one body, for we are all partakers of that one bread. Now turn with me over to the book of Mark. We'll spend the majority of the time this morning in the book of Mark chapter number 14. The book of Mark chapter number 14. We'll pick up in verse number, uh, let's go back and pick up in verse number 12. We'll be keying in on the verses in verse number 15 down through verse number 26. But I want to pick up in verse number 12, and we'll read down through verse number 26. The first day of unleavened bread, when they killed the Passover, his disciples said unto him, Where wilt thou that we go and prepare that thou mayest eat the Passover. And he, said, and he sendeth forth two of his disciples, and saith unto them, Go ye into the city, and there shall meet you a man bearing a pitcher of water. Follow him. And wheresoever he shall go in, say ye to the good man of the house, the master saith, where is the guest chamber where I shall eat the Passover with my disciples? And he shall show you a large upper room furnished and prepared. There make ready for us. And his disciples went forth and came into the city and found as he had said unto them, and they made ready the Passover. And in the evening he cometh with the twelve. And as they sat and did eat, Jesus said, Verily I say unto you, 
One of you which eateth with me shall betray me. And they began to be sorrowful and to say unto one, un, and began to say unto him, one by one, is it I? And another said, is it I? And he answered and said unto them, it is one of the twelve that dippeth with me in the dish. The Son of Man indeed goeth as it is written of him, but woe to that that by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. Go, or good, where it, where it for that man, if it had never been born. And he said, and, and they did eat. Jesus took the bread and blessed it and break it and gave to them and said, Take eat, this is my body. And he, and he took the cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they drank of it. And he said unto them, This is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many. Verily I say unto you, I will drink no more of the fruit of the vine until that day that I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out unto the Mount of Olives. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these passages of Scripture. Lord, we pray that we could glean from them that that would be pleasing to you. I pray that we would get a clear sight of what the Lord's table means, what it is to us, and how that it is a means of grace for us. I pray that you would do in each of our hearts what you would have to be done. And once again, we thank you for everything that has been done thus far. We ask you now, Lord, that you would bless the preaching of the Word of God. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're looking at and considering this week and next week, we're looking at and considering the Lord's Supper, how that it is a feast of the covenant. By way of introduction, we need to understand the significance of meals in our life. Uh, To have meals is significant. Meals are a regular occurrence in our life. They have to be. We need them. We eat sometimes alone, but oftentimes with others. It is during those occasions that our bodies receive the vital nourishment that we may continue to go until we come to the next meal. So those things are necessary for us. When we consider those things in context of this passage of Scripture, we need to understand a few things about what is being done here. They have sat down to a meal. They've come together around a meal. And as they've come together around this meal, the Lord Jesus Christ is instituting something that they had previously had annually, but now he is bringing it to them and calling them to do that more often than annually. 
Jesus is instituting the Lord's Supper. In verse number 22 down through verse number 25, we find the Lord's Supper. It says, And as they did eat, Jesus took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave to them and said unto them, Eat, this is my body. And he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said unto them, This is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many. He made the statement, Verily, verily, I, or verily I say unto you, I will drink no more of the fruit of the vine until the day that I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung the hymn, they went out unto the Mount of Olives. Jesus Christ himself is instituting the Lord's Supper. He is beginning something here, and he is, he is wrapping this around a statement that is made in verse number 24. And he said unto them, this is the blood of what? The New Testament. Or we could also say in that passage of Scripture, the new covenant. The covenant that He has made. The covenant that He is holding and the covenant that He will continue to hold. The Lord Jesus Christ has established a new covenant meal with His disciples. And He is telling them that instead of them practicing one time a year, that they are to remember this more often. He told us that in the other passage of Scripture that we read in 1 Corinthians, that we are to do it as often as we do it. We're to do it in memory of what He has done, in remembrance of Him. Jesus has established a new covenant. That new covenant is Himself. He is a new and better way. He is the better way. It is a new covenant, and that new covenant is by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you know the reason why His covenant will stand sure? Because it is by His blood. It's not by our blood, but it is by His blood. Jesus establishes this new covenant meal, and he transitions them, and I've already said this, but he transitions them from the Passover to the Lord's Supper. They have practiced something prior to Christ's coming. They have practiced something once a year. They've come together and practiced and, and remembered the Passover. They've done that. Why, why did they... Why did they come together and remember the Passover. They, they did that looking forward to the coming of the Messiah. That's what all of that was about, that there was a promise of one that was going to come, that was going to shed his blood, that was going to be the lamb that was going to take away the sins of the world. And prior to his coming, this meal was observed during the Passover. This meal, this covenant remembrance and that was reminding them that God had made a covenant with them and God was going to keep his covenant 
Well, Jesus now is a new and better mediator. And he institutes a new and better covenant. The connection between the physical nourishment and the spiritual nourishment we see when we come to 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse number 6. The word of God says this, If thou put the brethren in remembrance of these things, thou shalt be a good minister of Jesus Christ. And then he doesn't stop there, but Paul makes this statement. He says, Nourished up in the words of faith and of good doctrine, whereunto thou hast attained, whereunto thou hast come, whereunto thou hast gotten. When he's talking about being nourished up, that is, that is the only place in the entirety of the Word of God that you find that phrase put that way. And that phrase put that way means to educate or to form the mind. He tells them, if thou put the brethren in remembrance of these things, Thou shalt be a good minister of Jesus Christ. Nourished up in the word of faith and of good doctrine whereunto thou hast attained. Educated or forming the mind to remember and recall and understand the nourishment that we gain from the Lord Jesus Christ. Just as we need physical food to live, we need to be nourished with spiritual food in order for us to thrive spiritually. You and I are not going to thrive spiritually if we're not nourished spiritually. We're not going to thrive spiritually if we're not nourished spiritually correctly. Don't miss this. I'm going to make a statement this morning. And I don't want you to miss this. The reason that so many seem to be anemic or lacking in their assurance is because they are not being given the good food of Christ alone. But the rotten junk food of moralism. That's what's being preached most of the time. You can do it. Morally, you need to obtain this. You need to reach to this. You need to strive to this. The reason so many seem to be anemic, lacking in their assurance, is because they are not being given the good food of Christ alone. But they're being given the rotten junk food of moralism. According to Paul in Romans chapter number 10, if we're going to have our faith increased, we must have it increased by the same gospel by which it originated. If our faith is going to be increased, then it must be increased in the same manner in which it was originated. How was our faith originated? Our faith was originated in the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Lord Jesus Christ alone. 
If, that's, if that be the truth, and it is, then the only way that it can increase and be increased and the only way that we can be nourished by it is to be nourished by it as it originated and that is by Christ alone. Not by adding our works to it. Not by adding what we do to it. Not by adding any other thing to it. But by it being Christ alone. It is not Christ plus this. It is not Christ plus that. It is not Christ minus this. It is not Christ minus that. It is Christ alone in which we will get our spiritual nourishment. It's understanding that that we see that there are three truths about the Lord's Supper and it being a means of grace. There are three things that we want to consider. We're going to look at part of this, but we're not going to dive into all of this this morning. We're going to look at part of these three truths about the Lord's Supper as it is a means of grace. Number one, we need to understand the proclamation of the covenant blessing by the Lord's Supper. There is a proclamation of a covenant blessing by the Lord's Supper. The Supper is the proclamation of the covenant of grace and all that it promises. Don't miss that. Understand that when we partake of the Lord's Supper, it is a proclamation of the covenant of grace and all that it promises unto us. I.e., we're talking about the gospel. We're talking about the entirety of the gospel. That's what the Lord's Supper presents to us and brings to us. We have the necessity that was brought about, the necessity of the new covenant. There was a new covenant. And that new covenant that Jesus Christ is instituting in this passage of Scripture, that new covenant that He is instituting, there was a necessity for that new covenant. What is that new covenant? That new covenant, He said, this is my blood in the new covenant. What is the new covenant? It's the blood of Christ. It's the gospel of Christ. It is the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ. It is all that went into leading up to what Jesus Christ did on our behalf. It is Jesus Christ and Him alone and Him complete. That is the new covenant. The second London Baptist Confession, chapter number 7, and point number 1 says this, The distance between God and the creature is so great that although reasonable creatures do owe obedience to Him as their Creator, yet they could never have attained the reward of life by some 
voluntary condescence of on on God's part. It had to be on God's part that we received that grace. It was not that we could attain that reward on our own, but it was re, it was received by a, a voluntary work on God's part, by which He hath been pleased to express by the way of the covenant. What is the covenant? The covenant is the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ. The covenant is all that Christ did leading up to. It is His life, His death, His burial, His resurrection, His ascension, His glorification. All of those things are part of that covenant. Again, the second London Baptist Confession says that the only way a creature can attain the reward of life is by an a voluntary act on God's part. We could not have attained. Adam couldn't have Adam couldn't have redone what he did. Adam couldn't have reversed what he did. We could not reverse what Adam did. The only way that that could be reversed, it had to be reversed by Jesus Christ and by him alone. It was not in what we had done, but it was in what he had done. We could not go to God, so God came to us. We could not attain acceptance before God outside of Christ. So God in Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, is that not what he was called? What does Emmanuel mean? Emmanuel being interpreted God with us. God came and God reconciled what man had put asunder, what man had tore apart. God reconciled in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We could never get to God so God came to us. So we have the proclamation of the covenant blessings, those covenant things that were given to us because of what Jesus Christ has done. Then there is the presence of Christ at the supper. There are different views as to what happens with the Lord's Supper. There's different views. And I want, I want to give these to you so you have an understanding of what others may tell you so that you and I have an understanding of what the Lord's Supper really means, what it really is. There is the matter of transubstantiation. Transubstantiation is the official teaching of the Roman Catholicism. It's the official teaching of Roman Catholicism. Trans means to change. And substantiation means to means substance. It is the idea that when the bread and the wine are blessed by the priest during the Mass, that the bread and the wine are transformed into the actual physical body and blood of Jesus Christ. 
There are several problems with that. But namely, I'm going to mention one this morning. The main problem is that is a teaching of cannibalism. And, and you can't adhere to that. That's not right. So we do not subscribe to transubstantiation. We do not subscribe to the fact that as it is blessed, it actually transformed, transforms into the physical body and the physical blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Then there's the matter of consubstantiation. Consubstantiation means together. The word con means together. Substantiation again means substance. Martin Luther made this statement or made this argument that rather than changing completely, the substance of the bread and the wine coexist with the body and the blood of Christ in the supper. He emphasized this by those words that we read this morning. He emphasized that by this is my body and this is my blood. The analogy that people sometimes give about consubstantiation is that if you had a sponge full of water, the water is not the sponge and the sponge is not the water, but they coexist. They are there together. That's consubstantiation. Then there are others that talk about the moral view. This moral view of the Lord's Supper is an emphasizing that Christ commanded us to do this in remembrance of Him. It's a they, they use those words to play on that. It is a view that the, it is a memorial, if you will. It's a memorial view. It's a, it's a memorial. At, uh, it is all that it is. It's an act of remembering. The bread and the wine are merely symbols reminding us that Christ's body was broken for us and his blood was shed for us. Nothing, nothing wrong with that remembrance. But we don't hold to either of these first, view, these first three views. I want to tell you what we do subscribe to. It's the real presence view. Taking strong issue with the Roman Catholicism view. And not agreeing with Luther either but at the same time not seeing the Lord's Supper just as a mere memorial. The earlier Baptist held to the view of the real presence view. They taught that it is certainly symbolic. What we practice is symbolic. But the symbols do more than merely represent they actually bring to us a spiritual benefit of Christ's work that is something tangible that we can hold to. Don't miss that. They taught that it is certainly symbolic and the, the symbols do 
more than just merely represent. They do more than just merely remind us. They actually bring to us the spiritual benefits of Christ's work in a tangible way in our life. Something that we'll dive a little more deeper into next week. But understand this. When we consider the Lord's Supper, and we're going to be taking partaking of the Lord's Supper this morning. It's the first Sunday of the month, and we're going to partake of the Lord's Supper. But as we do that, understand that Christ is giving us something tangible that we can see, that we can hold to, that will show us Christ in us. What it, what it, what it brings to us is an understanding of Christ in us. We just looked at baptism the last two weeks. Baptism is us in Christ. The Lord's Supper is Christ in us. How many times are you placed into Christ? Once. That's the reason you're baptized. Once. How many times in our life do we consume the Lord Jesus Christ? Do we have Christ working in us? How, how, much, how much of the time are we instructed to, to have Christ in us? The hope of glory. To let that shine forth. It's over and over and over. How many times are we instructed to love our brethren? How many times are we instructed to love our neighbor? How many times are we instructed to obey the commands of God? How many times are we instructed those things? It's over and over and over. That's the reason that we partake of the Lord's Supper over and over. That's the reason we only baptize once. That's us being placed in Christ. This communion, the Lord's Supper, is Christ in us. Christ being shown through us. So we look at and understand that it is something tangible that God gives us that we can hold to. We're told in the Scripture, we're told several things, and I don't want to get too far into some of this because we're going to look at some of it next week, but we are told to examine ourselves. What does that mean? To examine ourselves to see if we're worthy to partake of the Lord's Supper? Let me ask you something. Are you ever worthy to partake of the Lord's Supper? You're not. We're to examine ourselves to see that we're not worthy so that it points us to Christ and it points us to Christ alone and we see Christ alone in us. So every time that we do that, we have something tangible that is reminding us that the only hope that you and I have is Christ in us. He is our hope of glory. He's the only hope we have. And we'll dig a little deeper into some of that next week. But understand that we've, we've recognized what what the Lord's Supper is and what it is not. 
It's not transubstantiation. It's con. It's not consubstantiation. It's not the moral or, or memorial view, but it is a real presence of what God is doing in us as we consume. As He said, "This is my body. Take eat. Be reminded." It is not just a symbol. It is not just a memorial. It's not just a reminder. While it is a reminder. But that's not all it is. It's something that we can hold to. It's something we can put our hands on. It's something that we can wrap our, our assurances. We can wrap our, our, our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ around. This is Christ in me. So let us remember that as we go forward and partake of the Lord's Supper. Let's pray. Attention this morning to the book of 2 Corinthians chapter number 12. The book of 2 Corinthians chapter number 12. We're not going, I'm, I'm going to go through the introduction of the message before we read this passage of Scripture. Uh, we'll kind of highlight what we went over last week and what we looked at talking about prayer being a means of God's grace. When we started this series, we started out with understanding what means means. It, it is a method by which God reveals His grace on a continued basis. It's things that God gives us that we can tangibly hold to, that we can get a grasp of, that allows us to see God's grace demonstrated. Prayer is one of those things. We think sometimes, I, I, I think at least myself, I think sometimes that prayer is a one-sided thing, but it's not. It is a means by which God meets with us. We don't enter the throne room of God and find no one there. We enter the throne room of God and we find Him ever there. We find our Savior ever there. And what is He doing? It tells us He is making intercession for us. How is He making intercession for us? He's making intercession for us because He is ever there. That is His means of making intercession. If, if the Father were to look to the right hand and Christ were gone, you and I would have no hope. Our hope is in Christ and in Christ alone. And it is the fact that he sits on the right hand of the Father. And every time the Father looks, he's there. And he's making intercession for us. We looked at the fact that prayer is a means of grace. We looked at last week that prayer prepares us to receive God's grace. It, it gets us to a point to receive God's grace Prayer prepares us to receive God and His grace because it helps us to acknowledge our dependency upon that grace. 
When we go to God in prayer, it's because we can't handle it. We can't control it. There's nothing we can do with it. Sometimes we go to God in prayer in praise and adoration and we approach God just to say thank you. But most often, if we'll be honest with ourselves, most often we go to God when things aren't going well. And that's when God wants us to come to Him. He instructs us to come to Him to find grace to help in time of need. There's nothing wrong. Don't let anyone don't let anyone tell you that there's something wrong with you turning to God when you can't handle it. You say, "Well, I didn't pray that much this week, but I had something go wrong and I turned to God." By all means, turn to God. God wants you to turn to him. God wants you to find grace to help in time of need. God wants that for us. It prepares us to receive God's grace by allowing us and causing us to acknowledge our dependence on someone outside of ourselves. Prayer petitions to receive God's grace. When you and I go before God in prayer, we're going before God looking for the grace of God. Have we ever went have we ever went to God in prayer and not looked for the grace of God? Even when we even when we praise God in prayer, we're looking for the grace of God. So God allows us prayer and in prayer it, we petition God that we might receive his grace. Prayer is how we ask God for the things we need. He said you have not why? Because you ask not. God wants us to ask. We may not receive what we think we need but one thing we will always receive is grace. We're going to look at Paul in just a moment. Paul didn't receive what he thought he needed, but he received grace. Prayer is not only preparing us to receive God's grace, it not only petition, helps us to petition to receive God's grace, but prayer is the response to God's grace. God shows grace to us and we respond in prayer. Prayer is the way that we respond to God in thankfulness. To put it simple, if we were to sum up all of that that we covered last week, we would put it this way. Prayer prepares us for grace because we acknowledge that we need it. It is the way that we ask for grace and it is the way that we respond in thankfulness for that grace. That's what prayer is. Prayer is a good thing. And we're going to find in this passage of Scripture this morning, 2 Corinthians chapter number 12, we're going to pick up in verse number 7. But I want to I wanna carry us to the place where Paul's at. 
Paul has just got through telling those in Corinth that in, in the first portion of this, Paul is telling them of his vision of paradise. He's telling them that he knew a, knew a man, whether in the body or out of the body, he did not know, who had ascended up into heaven and had seen things that were unspeakable. And now Paul's going to turn to what's going on in his life. And he says in verse number 7, And lest I should be exalted above measure. Why would Paul make that statement? Paul made that statement because he just got through telling us that he had received visions from God. God had given him Wondrous things. Paul says, And lest I should be exalted above measure, through the abundance of the revelations, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh. Have you ever read Scripture and you go back and you read it again and there's something in it that jumps out and you say, why did I not see that before? It was kind of that way in studying this for me when I saw where Paul made the statement, and lest I should be exalted above measure, through the abundance of the revelations, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh. God gave Paul this thorn in the flesh in order that Paul not be lifted up in himself. That's what Paul's saying. He says here, there was given to him a thorn in the flesh, the, measure, uh, the messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. We're not going to try to discuss this morning what his thorn was. That's not necessary. What is necessary is we see what Paul found when he went before God. In verse number 8, he said, For this thing I besought the Lord thrice, that it might depart from me. What Paul was having go on was a messenger of Satan was buffeting him. Whatever that might have been, that's what was happening. And he besought God three times that God remove it from him and, and that it might depart. He says in verse number 9, And he said unto me, talking about God, My grace is sufficient for thee. For my strength is made perfect in weakness, most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in mine infirmities that the power of Christ rests upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in my in infirmities, in reproaches, in necessities, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then am I strong. That, if you were to just read that out of the blue, that don't make any sense. But Paul is going to go on to explain why. 
He said, I, I am become a fool in glorying. Ye have compelled me, for I ought to have been commended to you. Uh, for nothing I am behind the very chiefest, beyond the very chiefest apostles, though I be nothing. Truly the signs of an apostle were wrought among you in all patience, in signs and wonders and mighty deeds. For what is it wherein ye were in, inferred to other churches except to be that I, I myself was not burdensome to you? Forgive me this wrong. Then Paul says in verse number 14, Behold, the third time I am ready to come to you and will not be burdensome to you, for I seek not yours but you, for your children ought not to uh, lay up for the parents but the parents for the children. What we want to look at this morning, what we want to consider is Paul's prayer. And when Paul prayed before God, there's some things that we need to understand about prayer. We saw that prayer is a means of God's grace, but the Bible teaches us how we ought to pray, the way to pray. How do we pray? First of all, I want us to understand that we should pray confidently. We should pray confidently. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse number 16 says this, Let us therefore come how? Boldly. That word boldly doesn't mean that we come with arrogance. It means that we come with confidence. We come before God with confidence. It says, Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace. You see where we you you see where we're coming? We're coming to the throne of grace and we're coming there with confidence. What is that confidence? Paul Paul goes on to tell us or the writer of Hebrews goes on to tell us what that confidence is. That confidence is that we might obtain mercy and find grace. You and I should have, from the Word of God and, and from Scripture, we should have confidence that when we come before God, we will obtain mercy and we will find grace. There's a reason that that's going to happen. But that grace that we find there, we're told in the book of Hebrews chapter 4 and verse number 16, is a grace to help in time of need. Hebrews 4.16 encourages confidence in prayer. It emphasizes the acknowledgement of our need. Our need for what? Our need for mercy and our need for grace. And it educates us as to where we can find it. It encourages us encourage us to come in confidence. 
It emphasizes that we acknowledge our need for God's mercy and God's grace, and it educates us as to where we can find it. We are to come boldly before the throne of grace. We're not only to come boldly and confidently, but we are to pray in the name of the Son. John chapter 14, verse number 13 says this, And whatsoever ye shall ask in my name, that will I do, that the Father might be glorified in the Son. We pray with the recognition that we are coming to the Father through the Son. That's the reason we pray in Jesus' name. We're recognizing that we are coming to the Father, but we are coming to the Father through the Son, which is the second person of the Trinity. Understand this. When we pray, our assurance is not in ourselves. When we come to God and we pray, it is not because we have great words of oratory to go before God. It is because we come to our Father and we come to our Father through our brother, Jesus Christ, the only begotten of the Father. He was the firstborn among many brethren. We come through him. Why? Because he forever has favor with God. And if we come through him, how many that, that, that have other siblings and you lived with other siblings at home and you felt like that your mother or father showed favor to one of the other children more so than they showed favor to you, did you not try at times in your life to get your brother or sister or sibling that you felt like had better favor with your mother or father? Did you not try to get them to talk mom and dad into doing things that you wanted to do? <laughs> that's, that's basically what we're doing. Christ has favor with God. And we're in Christ and we go to the Father laying our petitions before Him through the only begotten of the Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. Because we are coming in the name of Jesus Christ, we can come knowing that we have everything necessary to approach God. If I had to come to God by myself, I wouldn't even get into the throne room. I would have no access. Why? Because in myself, there is nothing good to grant me that access. The access that I have before the Father is in the Son. Our coming to the Father is through the Son. That is where we have our access. We come knowing that we have everything necessary to approach God, not only, not only 
to approach God, but we're approaching the God of the universe. And we can know for sure that because of Christ, He will answer our prayers. Your prayer will be answered. We may not get the answer that we desire sometimes, but it will be answered. And it will be graceful. God will give us grace. Paul did not get what he asked for. But what did he find? He found grace. Prayer is a means of us gaining God's grace. Walter Marshall put it this way in his book on the gospel, of, gospel mystery of sanctification. He said this, It is not enough to conclude our prayers through Jesus Christ our Lord, but we come for blessings in the garments of our elder brother. And we must depend upon his worthiness and strength for us all. When you come before God, when you come to the throne of God, when you enter the throne room of God, you access the throne of God through the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't come in our own righteousness. We enter under the, in the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have on us the garments of our elder brother. God shows us favor because of that. In this way, prayer is a means of grace as it connects us to Christ for our assurance. The act of asking in prayer is the means by which we receive God's graciousness. The act of asking before God is the means by which God demonstrates His grace. And He gives us His grace. We are to pray according to the Father's will. That's what 1 John chapter 5, verse 14 and 15 tells us. And this is the confidence that we have in Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He heareth us. <laughs> By the time we get to the end of this, you're going to understand that what we ask is according to God's will. There's a reason for that. We'll, we'll get to that as we go down through here. We should pray the will of God as revealed in the Scriptures. Those things that we see that is revealed in the Scriptures, we should pray that way. That's the reason that the disciples told God to teach them to pray. That's the reason God gave model prayers. That's the reason God allowed us to know and understand His intercessory prayer on our behalf. Praying according to God's will as revealed in scriptures aligns our petitions with God's plans. We're coming to God asking. And when we come before God asking in His will, then our our petitions and God's plans align and is God going to fulfill his plans 
Yes, he is. So if he's going to fulfill his plans and our petitions are aligned with his plans, you know that your prayer is going to be answered because you prayed in the will of God. We are to pray with the help of the Spirit. This is important. We are to pray with the help of the Spirit. The Spirit helps us. Romans chapter 8 and verse number 26 says this, Likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities, for we know not what we should pray as we ought, but the Spirit itself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. We don't always know what to pray. But the Spirit does. Why? Because the Spirit is God. The Bible tells us that our infirmity or weakness is that we know not what to pray or how to pray sometimes, but that we do know to pray. Romans chapter 8 and verse number 26 says this, the Spirit helps us. That word help occurs only here and in one other place in the New Testament. The meaning of the word is the idea that someone is carrying a heavy burden for us. Helping us carry that load. Enabling us to be able to carry that load. It is a person that comes alongside of and takes hold of that burden with us and carries it with us. It's not that the Spirit takes it from us. The Spirit helps us carry that burden. The Word implies that the Holy Spirit does not do everything for us while we sit back and do nothing. We are to pray. But as we pray, the Spirit says, let me grab the other end and help you with this. I know what to pray, and I know what to pray when you don't know what to pray. The Spirit not only helps us, but the Spirit intercedes for us. Verse number 26, he also says, Likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities, for we know not what we should pray as we ought, but the Spirit himself maketh intercession for us with groanings that cannot be uttered. Not only is the Spirit helping us as we enter the throne room of grace with our prayers, but he also speaks for us when we don't know what to speak. Martin Lloyd-Jones puts it this way. He says, The Spirit translates our request before the Father. The Spirit is helping us carry our burdens in prayer, but He also translates our prayers before the Father. When we pray for a specific need, the Spirit says, what they really mean is this. Now do you understand why your prayers are going to be answered? Because we may take it to God 
this way, but the Spirit of God intercedes for us and interprets and translates for us and said what they really meant to say is this. And if God's praying to God, do you think God's going to answer? Sure he is. <laughs> this we see in the very next verse. Eight, Romans 8 and verse number 27 says this. And he that searcheth the hearts knoweth what is in the mind of the Spirit because he maketh intercession for the saints according to what? The will of God. The Spirit always prays in the will of God because He is God. And if the Spirit is translating our request into what God is going to hear, God is going to answer those prayers. The Spirit knows what we really need. And He knows what the will of God is. This is why we can have assurance that everything will work to the good of them that love God and are called according to His purpose. Now that makes a lot more sense, don't it? Why, is, why are all of those things going to work together for the good of them that love God and are called according to His purpose? Because the Holy Spirit of God is praying with us, helping us carry that burden, and He's translating before God what our requests are, and He's saying, this is what they really need. The Spirit is interceding for us. He's asking for the will of God. The blessing is this, in this, is that the Holy Spirit intercedes for us, aiding our prayers and giving something that we cannot. Not only are we coming through the name of the Son, but we are coming with the help of the Holy Spirit. You and I are coming to the Father to lay our petitions before Him. We're coming to the throne of what? The throne of grace. That we might obtain mercy and grace to do what? To help in the time of need. We're coming to the Father. We're coming to the Father through the Son. And we're coming to the Father through the Son with the help and the aid and the interpretation of the Spirit of God. Now tell me prayer is not important. And tell me that prayer is not a means of grace. God reveals His grace to us through this means of prayer. Not only are we coming through the name of the Son and coming with the help of the Spirit, so in that we understand that we are never alone when we come to God in prayer. When we don't know what to pray, He prays for us. What a blessing to have a God who prays to God on our behalf. God made it so that our prayers are sure that they're going to get answered. I want us to look at this morning and understand the importance, and I'll try to go through this quickly. We, I can't promise you that, but I'm going to try to. There's an importance to corporate prayer. It's important that we pray together. 
It's important that we have our prayer time. It's important that we pray to God. But there is an importance to us praying together. There's an importance. That's the reason we do what we do on Sunday morning. That's the reason we come in and we understand by being given the law, we understand that we failed God and we pray and we confess that before God, but we find that help that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a reason that we pray those prayers. There's an importance to corporate prayer. There is a biblical case for corporate prayer. The early church prayed as a body. What did it tell us in Acts chapter 2 and verse number 42? It tells us that the church at Jerusalem continually devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, continually devoted themselves to fellowship, and continually devoted themselves to the breaking of bread and prayer. That wasn't left out. They devoted themselves to that. Jesus models corporate prayer. In Matthew chapter number 9, verse 9 through 13, this is what Jesus says. This is the model prayer. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now listen to this. Give what? Us. This day, our, our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. All of those pronouns were plural. Christ wasn't praying he, he wasn't praying for himself. He was praying for us all. And he was inclusive of us all. That's the reason we, even this morning, we confess together, God, we failed you. So that we together look to Jesus Christ who has not failed. The majority of the New Testament Commands to pray are in the plural tense. Matthew chapter 7 and verse number 7, all the yous that you find in Matthew chapter 7, verse 7, all the yous are plural. If there were, if there were a North Carolina translation, which is not, but if there were a North, Car North Carolina translation, it would say this. Ask and it shall be given to y'all. Seek and y'all shall find. Knock and the door will be opened to all y'all. It's plural. It's about us coming together and asking. It's about us coming together and seeking. It's about us coming together and knocking. And if we do that, He promises that if we ask, it shall be answered. If we seek, we shall find. If we knock, the door shall be open. Corporate prayer is the practical 
there, there's a practical purpose in corporate prayer. Corporate prayer fosters a God-centered mindset. When we pray together, who are we praying to? We're praying to God. It, it brings together a God-centered mindset. As we pray, we are vocally praying among Christians and bringing together a greater unity that we grow together in a God-centered mindset among all those that are hearing the prayer. Praying is not someone standing up with great words of orator, but it is us praying before God together. Some of the greatest prayers that I've ever heard prayed was when I just felt like they were talking to God. You heard those people pray that it it just seemed like they kind of zoned everybody out and they just went in and prayed to God, but they let you come with them. That is encouraging. That is uplifting. It helps us as the children of God. The prayers that we pray, they show a desire to see God glorified whatever the circumstance. They show a recognition of God's sovereignty. They show praise of God's grace and mercy in Christ. They show praise for God's grace in other lives. They show a desire for the gospel to be proclaimed among all believers. They show a recognition of our sins and hopelessness apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. Those prayers do those things when we pray corporately together. So in prayer, we, we, we unite ourselves around the truths of God and that fosters a God-centered mindset among God's people. It's important that we pray together. There's something to be said for the cliche that went around. A family that prays together stays together. Can I tell you something else? A church that prays together stays together. A church that, that prays together stays together. Why? Because we have one mindset. That mindset's centered around God. Corporate prayer encourages one another. Life is hard. Life is difficult. On this side of heaven, we face sickness, we face sin, we face death, we face brokenness. As fellow believers of Christ, we can encourage one another in those times by praying for one another. By corporately praying together. Even in loss. We understand, even in the middle of calamity, we understand that we see, can see the light of God in the midst of all of that. We're encouraged. When we gather with other believers to pray, we can encourage one another and build one another up. In fact, Paul tells us that in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse number 11. In corporate prayer, we can remind our brothers and sisters verbally before God of His words and His promises. You know what we're doing when we pray before each other? 
We're just reminding each other of God's promises. We're just when when you are unable to speak God's promises to yourself, having someone pray with you and around you allows them to speak God's promises on your behalf. In corporate prayer, we can be reminded by our brothers and sisters of God's promises that God will never forsake us. Hebrews chapter 13, verse number 5. That nothing can separate us from the love of God. Romans chapter 8, verse 39. That we have a Savior who sympathizes with our weakness. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse number 15. We can remind ourselves of those things. And if God has given us that, He gave us that that we might see His grace. And if He gave us that that we might see His grace, then prayer is a means of God's grace. Corporate prayer teaches one another. When believers of varying ages and stages gather together to pray, we learn from one another. Jesus taught his disciples to pray. We learn from one another. As we hear those that have known God for a while, we hear them pray. We can understand how to pray. Corporate prayer confesses our sinfulness before each other. We pray with others and confess our sinfulness before God. We expose it to the light of Christ which is shed abroad in our hearts and God changes things. James exhorts us, confess your sins one to another and pray for one another that ye might be healed. In corporate prayer, we confess our sins before God as we come together and understand that we all come in the same need of the grace of God. There's not one of us here this morning that does not need the grace of God. Corporate prayer builds unity. Corporate prayer creates unity of purpose. We're praying for the same thing together. It brings us together. Corporate prayer creates a unity of the body. Acts chapter 2 and verse number 42 and verse number 46 says this, And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and the breaking of bread and prayers. And they continued daily with one accord in the temple, breaking bread from house to house and did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart. This verse teaches us that they wanted to be together. They continued daily. They were happy together and they were unified together around one purpose. It is nearly impossible. Please get this. It is nearly impossible for you or I to hold a grudge against anybody about anything when we're praying together about the same thing. It's almost impossible. God gave us this to keep us unified together. We can't have a grudge against each other and join each other in prayer over a matter. Corporate prayer promotes evangelism and the gospel. 
The scripture in Acts chapter number 2 continues to show the effect of the means of grace. In verse number 47, it says, Praising God and having favor with all the people, and the Lord added unto the church daily such as should be saved. When they prayed together, they came together in unity around prayer and around those matters. What happened? People were evangelized. People got saved. God added to the church. The results of the means of grace was that the gospel was spread even more. John says in 1 John chapter 5, verse 14, And this is the confidence that we have toward Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He heareth us. Peter tells us that the Lord does not wish that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So if that is the will of God, and it is, and we pray toward that, it's going to lead us toward evangelism and reaching out to others for the cause of Christ. We know not. We, we, we know that when we pray for the salvation of others, it is the desire of the Lord that they should repent. We, <laughs> we get to join God in His work. What is God's work? God's work is saving people. We get to join God in God's work by praying God save them. God bring them to repentance as we pray for those that are lost. Corporate prayer is the work of every believer. Every believer can pray. It does not matter this morning. It does not matter our age. It does not matter our physical ability. One thing every one of us can do is pray. That's not saying that prayer is not important. That's telling you prayer is important. If God, if God made prayer in such a way and, and gave us prayer in such a way that we can pray throughout our whole life, it doesn't matter what our physical ability, it doesn't, it doesn't even matter if we, were, if we were paralyzed from the neck down and having to be on a ventilator all of our life, we can still pray. God gave us prayer that we could pray. Corporate prayer is value, a valuable work, and it is a valuable work for everyone that is part of the church. John Owen explains that truth like this. The prayers of the meanest saint are as useful as the greatest apostle. <laughs> you, you may... You, your heart may not be right. My heart might not be right. But we go before God and we pray. Our prayers are just as useful before God as the greatest apostle. I, I'm concluding this morning. I know it's been a little longer than usual, but I'm concluding with this. Michael Horton write, writes this way. While preaching and the sacraments Create and confirm faith. Prayer is the response of faith. We go before God because we believe God will answer. 
if you and I did not believe God would answer and we had no confidence, no faith in God, would we pray? No. We pray because we believe God will answer. The word and the sacraments are the means of grace that create our faith, build up our faith, and assure us of the existence of faith which enables us to pray. God gives us the things he has given us that he demonstrates his grace to us. God gives us prayer as a means of his grace, as a means of his demonstrating his grace to us. Let's pray.